Last week, we started a new series called United We Stand. And if you didn't know, there's an election coming up. <laughs> uh, just here in a couple weeks, we have an election. And so anytime uh, there is an election, and specifically now in this culture, what we're going through right now, and there's a lot of tension. And tension has this effect of dividing us. Nothing really divides like politics because in the middle of a political season, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of things that people are saying, if this is what's going to happen and if this person wins, here's what's going to happen next. And so there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of fear. And what we talked about last week is a lot of that tension can divide us many different ways. Republicans, libertarians, Democrats, but it can also divide us in the church. Christians every year kind of wonder what the, th- you know, the Christ-like thing to do is in the middle of election. And so it can even divide churches. I mean, I know Christian friends who, you know, tear each other to bits over, over this election type stuff. And, and the thing we talked about is that Jesus prayed a prayer. Before he was taken and before he was crucified, he asked, he had a prayer request for God and he asked God something. And what he told God is he said, God, would you please, would you protect their oneness? He said, I'm about to go, but they're going to stay here and they have to do what's, what the next stage of this is. And so God, would you protect their oneness? Would you protect their unity? He prayed, God, would you make them one as we are one? And so what we talked about is we need to model that even today in the midst of this divisive climate that we're in. And the way that we do that when it comes to politics is we need to disagree politically and love still unconditionally. This is what Christ has called us to do. It's okay to disagree politically, but even in the midst of that, we must love unconditionally. I think politics are great. I think it's okay to be political or to be into politics. I think you should lean into politics. But we cannot let anyone or we cannot let anything divide us. What's most important is that we are one as Christ and God were one, that we protect the unity of the church, that we be united as believers. Uh, Because when people see a, a, a group Uh, unified in spite of diversity, something amazing happens. Jesus even said in his prayer, he said, the reason I'm praying this is so that people would see it and believe that I am the son of God. Because when people see everything going on out there, people tearing each other apart, people being mean to each other, people being hateful, all that stuff, but they look at a group of people and they see unity in spite of diversity. They go, well, something special is going on there because that's not normal. And all of a sudden, it gives, it gives credibility to the Christian faith. Because people, it's like, it's like a diet that you actually see work. They're like, oh, wow, that's not just a fad. That's not just a thing. I mean, look, it literally changed the person. So there's something to that. When people see us unified, in spite of diversity, they go, oh, well, there is. There's something to that. Because they're able to disagree politically and still love each other unconditionally. And so what I want to talk about today is where we should make sure that we are unified and what happens when we're not always unified. And the thing that Christians should at the very least be unified in is is our morality, right? And if you don't know what that is, it's the distinction between right and wrong. We should be unified in our morality. We should uh, be unified in what we agree is right and what is wrong. But what's amazing today is still there's some debate about this. Still, sometimes we debate amongst each other about what's 
right and what's wrong, what's okay to do and what's not okay to do. And it's for me as a, as a, as a pastor and as, you know, I was a pastor's kid as well. My dad's a pastor. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked a question, this question right here. It's, uh, where in the Bible does it say, right? You see, some of you laugh because you've asked me this question, right? Well, where in the Bible does it say we shouldn't fill in the blank? Well, where in the Bible does it say, hey, I'm trying to prove somebody wrong. Where in the Bible does it say, and we're looking for a verse, we're looking for a law, we're looking for a command that specifically says you can or cannot do this. And we think if there's not a verse that says don't do this, that it's permissible. You know, people tell me all the time, well, I can do that. I mean, there's no, there's no verse that says I shouldn't. Well, here's the, let me, let me just kind of break this down for you. And some of this is kind of reteaching you the Christian faith because some of you grew up in churches that were very old covenant, that were very law-based. And for some reason, as a new covenant church, they were still law-based. But that's what we're doing when we do that. When we are doing that, when we're asking that question, we are acting very Old Testament. We are acting very Old Covenant. We're saying, where's the rule book? Where's the laws? Well, here's the thing. We're a new covenant church under a new covenant with Jesus, and we're not under 613 laws in the Torah. We're under the command of Jesus now. And so we can't go, where's there a verse for that? Because you're not going to find a verse for everything. But that was what was so amazing and progressive about Jesus, what shows just how ahead of his time he was, is I think Jesus knew there, there's not a book that could hold the amount of commands that these people need to know. So, you know, what's even better than a list of rules is one all-encompassing rule, one all-encompassing command that could answer any question for all of time in any arena over any subject. And that's exactly what Jesus gave us. Jesus Jesus gave us a command that would be all-encompassing and help us understand anything we needed to know and how we could get on the same page on our morality and know the difference between right and wrong. And and, and Jesus, when he came, he gave us this new command. We read this verse last week in John 13. He goes, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He went on later and he said, by this, this is like the marker. This is how people are going to know that you are my disciple, by how you love each other. And he gave us this new morality clause, this new command that was all encompassing. And he said, I've come to fulfill the old. I'm not doing away with it. It was there. It was good. It served its purpose. I knew it wasn't going to last forever. And I'm giving you this new covenant and this new command I'm making with you. And you don't have to make a sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice. There'll be the last blood that ever has to be shed. So you can forget that system. We're going to totally redo that. By the way, just predicting the future, the temple, it's going to get torn down. Nobody freak out. It's totally okay because I don't need the temple anymore. Actually, I'm going to leave the temple and I'm going to have my spirit live in your heart. So forget the important buildings with the important room where only certain people are allowed. That system's going away too. And this was Jesus' new covenant. This was Jesus' new system. And what's so amazing is that it was all encompassing. It was a law It was a law that was able to inform our conscience on every decision, on every topic for all of time. It was beautifully progressive. It was transgenerational. It was transcultural. It could be passed on from, from, from generation to generation to generation to culture to culture to culture. It didn't make, matter the, the, the color of your skin or your, your, your economic background or your financial situation or anything. It's still today just as important, just as contemporary. It's still alive and it's still able to help us even today. 
to identify what is right and what is wrong. Because we can look at any action, we can look at any word, we can look at any decision, and we can ask ourselves, is this right or wrong? Well, how do I know if it's right or wrong? The way that I know is I can ask myself, is this the best way to love my brother or sister in Christ? If it's not, if it's not loving, and again, not my definition of love, but God's definition of love, if this doesn't love them the way that God has loved me, then it's not something I should do. And if I see something that's going on that's wrong, that's, that's unloving towards my brother or my sister, then it should bother me. Then it should inform my conscience of that something wrong here is happening. Paul, he, he had a shorthand for this command that he used in two different letters. And he, he called it this. He called it the law of Christ. So when you see Paul write about the law of Christ, that was his shorthand for the new command that people had, you know, been learning at that time. And he writes it in two of his letters. The first one is to 1 Corinthians. The second one is to Galatians. And this is what he says in Galatians, and we've used this verse many times. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. That, if you want to know what it looks like, you want to have it fleshed out to know what it means to fulfill the law of Christ, to love your neighbor as yourself, the way that God's loved you, carry each other's burdens. Another way to put it is, so when the concerns of others concern you, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. When the concerns of others concern you, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. And these are the marching orders of every single Christian. This is the basics. This is the foundations. This is the most important thing that our, our children need to learn, that we need to learn when we come to the faith. Well, can you give it to me in, in one short elevator pitch? Yes. Love each other the way that God has loved you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it looks like to be in covenant with God. And so what we believe over time is that we believe when we better understand the love of God, we believe that the law of Christ should inform our conscience that we should know right from wrong based on what we've learned about God. But here's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing is no matter what cultural context we are or what age we are or the color of our skin or even our past experiences, the beautiful thing is that what we believe is that when we understand this law and this command given by Jesus, that it would inform all of our consciousness. That together, as a church, as a body of believers, when someone isn't loved in the way that Christ loved us, it should ding all of our collective consciousness. Period. So when we see our brothers and sisters not loved in the way, the way that Christ loved us, it should irritate us. It should convict us. It should disturb us. When we see racial, uh, racial prejudice, it should irritate us. It should convict us. It should disturb us. When we see a child abused, neglected, or dishonored, it should irritate us. It dis should disturb us. It should convict us. When we see somebody uh, caught in the midst of adultery or sexual sin or addiction, it should disturb us. It should convict us. It should irritate us. It should pull on us. And what that is inside of us is that's the spirit of God living in our hearts saying, you know, you, you know, you feel that in your heart? It's, 
It's because it's wrong. Because I'm telling you in your heart, you don't even need to go to church to know this because I'm living inside of you and I'm telling you there's something off about this. And that something off is that in this situation, someone is not being loved with the same love of Christ. And that should pull us all in. That should collectively bother every single one of us. And we should not make any buts about it. We shouldn't make any, well, you know, no, 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 no. When someone isn't loved the way that Christ loved us, no matter if they deserved it, no matter if it was fair, whatever it may be, it should collectively ding our conscience as Christians. And it should bother us and it should pull us together. That law of Christ informs us. And, and what's so powerful about this, what we see happen through history, is that when Christians were able to understand this concept and take this command, this one simplistic, all-encompassing command, when they took it and they understood it and they held it in their hearts as important as their covenant with God, it changed, it reshaped Western culture. I know I say that all the time, but it's true. It really got us to where we are today and it reshaped Western culture. Here's the most wonderful thing that it did is it changed and it reshaped what was self-evident to people around the world. It, take, for example, this, some of the things that were self-evident. It was self-evident thousands of years ago that people should own other people. You know, philosophers uh, back in, back in you know, that time when philosophers did what philosophers did, their job was to help people understand the world, understand life, Right? So you, you take Aristotle, for example. Aristotle, he wrote this about slavery. Uh, he says, uh, for that some should rule others, uh, be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but is expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. This is Aristotle. This is him explaining to people how the world works. And he says, look, from birth, some people are marked out for slavery and some people are marked out to be owners. And that's just the way the world is. And so it was self-evident to people. Slavery is okay. Slavery is not a big deal. There are some people that just should be slaves. And then the amazing thing that happened is Jesus comes on the scene and teaches this new command to love everyone, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, it doesn't matter, the same way that Christ has loved us. And so all of a sudden it becomes this transcultural, transgenerational thing, transracial thing, and all of a sudden Christians look at slavery and go, that is wrong. That shouldn't happen. And they began to disagree with slavery. And then over time, do you know what happens? Slavery becomes illegal. After about the, uh, the, the fourth century, St. Augustine, who was a Christian, said no. He, he wrote a, his own philosophy paper. And he said, no, slavery is not expedient. Slavery is a result of sin. And things began to change and things began to snowball. And it wasn't always perfect, but it carried us even to where we are today. Now, think about that for a minute. Can you show me a verse in the New Testament where it says, don't be a racist? No, you can't give me a verse that specifically says that racism is wrong. However, Christians knew it was wrong because when they understood the command to love others the way that God had loved us, then they said, no, I, can, I don't need a command. I don't need something written on a tablet. I can look at this situation and I can tell you that is wrong. And they all agreed on it. And they unified together, and it changed the world for the better. Another self-evident concept was infanticide. 
Infanticide, uh, they said it was good for society. If you don't know what infanticide is, it was under the Roman Empire and many other cultural um, uh, groups, they would say sometimes babies just need to be killed. You know what? If you have a baby that you don't want, or if you have a baby that's born with some kind of uh, a handicap or something like that, or disformity or anything, then you know what? You just sometimes you just need to take a baby outside the walls of the city and leave them there, or you just need to take a baby out to the woods or along the river and just leave them there. You couldn't kill the baby yourself; that was illegal. If you did that, you would die yourself. But it was totally okay to just drop them out in the wild and see what happens. This was a normal thing that happened every single day all the time it was totally acceptable nobody blinked at it and everybody thought it was okay it was self-evident that that was okay and it was legal but then christians in the first century who begin to understand the new covenant that they have with jesus looked at what was happening to these babies and they said these babies are not being loved in the same way that god loved us and so something has to be done and so it was christians Christians who were the first to foster and adopt abandoned children. The Christians would go out in their small groups every single day along the city walls and along the line of the forest and along the riverbed and purposefully look for babies who had been abandoned and they would take them into their homes and with the little food and resources they had, grow these children like they were their own. Now again, was there a verse in the Bible? Was there a verse even in the Old Covenant that told them to do that, that informed them to do that? No. It was their understanding of this all-encompassing, important command that Jesus had gave them that drove their hearts towards this situation and said, something has to be done about this, and we have to be the ones that do it. And even though we're under-resourced, and even though we don't have what it takes, we have to do something. And what was amazing is that over time, this also became illegal. By the year 374, Emperor Constantine declared infanticide a crime. And he said, this is wrong, and it can't be done. And it changed Western culture forever. See, there's power in what Jesus gave us in this command. And when Christians are unified, when Christians come together and understand the command and understand when somebody is being not, not loved in the way that God loved us and something has to be done to it, when we are unified around our morality and come together and see a problem and try to find a solution, things change. Things change and they almost don't even have to be forced because people see what Christians are doing and they go, well, there's something different about that group of people. And then it becomes so popular, it almost becomes the exception. And people go, well, well, we need to jump on this train too. We almost look weird for not doing it because, I mean, who can disagree that love is the right thing to do? And it pulls people together and it draws people in. And the amazing thing is a law didn't require it. Love required it. It wasn't a law and it wasn't a command and it wasn't a scripture. It was love Love required it, and so something had to be done about it. And we Christians should be united in our morality. And today in 2020, we're not. We're not. We have, disagree we have disagreements about what's permissible and what's not. 
And I get asked all the time, especially, I don't mean to, to harp on anything, but, you know, people who are from my generation, millennials and, and Gen Xers, they want to know the verse and they want to know what's permissible, what's okay. And I'm going, look, man, you're being old covenant now. We're not, we, we, that ship has sailed. Like, we're not old covenant, we're new covenant. And what you really need to do is not come to me as your priest and ask you what's okay or not to do, okay? It's not that denomination. Instead, you need to go to the Word and you need to pray to God and ask God what love requires of you. And ask God, is this really the loving thing for me to do? Is this what's best to do? Not, again, in my terms or my point of view, but in terms of what's best for my brother or what's best for my sister. That's what we all need to do. We all need to get on the same page in in our morality. But even then, there will be disagreements, right? And that's the real question. What do we do when we even have disagreements about what it looks like, what's the best way to love our brother and sisters in Christ. One way to put it is this. What do we do when agreements end and diverse opinion begins, right? Parenting is a great example of this. You know, kids, kids need to be taught right and wrong. Kids need to be taught honor and respect. You're right, and that's why I whip my children. And then the other guy goes, no, 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 no. That's not what I was talking about, you know? I was thinking like timeouts. The timeouts would be good. Maybe like a nice 30-minute tea and counseling session. Nah, just rather whoop them real quick. They'll get it faster. Uh, you know, that's where like, right, agreement ends and diverse opinions begin. We have that in parenting. Well, guess what? It also happens in politics. When it comes to politics, even then we could be unified in our morality, but then we can have differing opinions about what it looks like. What is the best way to go about loving our brother and sister in Christ? The Republicans have their idea, the Democrats have their idea, the baby baby boomers have their ideas, the Gen Xers have their ideas, the white people have their ideas, the black eyed and brown people have their ideas. We all can have very diverse opinions on what it looks like or what the best way to go about loving our brother or sister is. And the reason is this, and everybody knows this is true, the reason is this, is where you stand really depends on where you sit, right? Where you stand really depends on where you sit. This is very simply put, this is Miles' Law. If you don't know what Miles' Law is, you can do a little bit of research. But Miles' Law basically says this. Miles' Law says our cultural context, where you sit, determines our perspective, where you stand. Miles' Law. We all know that to be true. Pausing and recognizing this is so vitally important, is so key to being unified in spite of our diversity. We have to understand that every single person, they get their political diversity from a a long list of things. People's political views and values are shaped by where they live, how they were raised, how they were educated, how what they've experienced, what they've seen other people experience. Every single one of us, we've grown up in different places, different contexts, had different experiences. Some of us grew up with no money. Some of us grew up with money. Some of us grew up with two parents. Some of us grew up with one parent. Some of us have seen some friends go through some terrific traumas and experience. And all of those things, all of those things shape where we stand politically. So even when we put our faith filter ahead of our political filter, we are still going to have differing opinions about the best way to love each other. So what in the world do we do? What do we do when we're united in morality and we look at a situation, we go, something needs to be done about this. Absolutely. But 
We have differing opinions about what that looks like. We have differing opinions about which political party is going to best be suited to solve that problem. What do we do then? Well, for that answer, we're going to go and look at something Peter said. Because Peter gives us the answer to this question. And in 1 Peter, Peter writes this letter, and he says this. He says, so finally, he's writing to his, his followers in his church, and he's saying, finally, all of you, let me wrap this up. Let me tell you, you know, let me wrap this up in a nutshell and tell you what this looks like. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Again, this is, so, this is just so beautiful, so amazing. This proves and gives so much credibility to the Bible. Both Jesus, both Paul, even Peter, they were all on the same page. They all understood that one of the most important things, the, the thing that we have to protect the most is our unified, uh, unified togetherness, our oneness. We have to be like Minded. Peter, when he's writing this letter, goes, all right, I finally, all right, I have to kind of wrap this up and tell him, let me think, what was that last thing that Jesus prayed before he was taken? He asked God for one thing. What was that thing? That we would be one as he and the Father were one. All right, so guys, first and foremost, be like-minded, be together, protect your oneness. This is so very important. You guys cannot be torn apart. Understand this. You must be on the same page. But then he's not an idiot. He's like, okay, but that's easier said than done. It's kind of naive to write that, right? I mean, come on. You know, there's a lot of different ages at this church. There's a lot of different colors of skin. There's a lot of different backgrounds. A lot of people making a lot of different money. Okay, so like-minded, duh, idiot. I mean, you can't just leave it there. So, okay, let's get a little practical here. And so then he writes something so practical and so important and so powerful. He says this. He says, be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. Do you know what that word means? Sympathy means this. Sympathy is suffering or feeling with another person. He says, I want you to be like-minded. I know, easier said than done. Let me tell you how that's done. I want you to be sympathetic. I want you to feel things out with other people. Let me explain something to you so important. This is so important to me when I learned this as a pastor, and it's so important for you as a Christian to understand. It's so important for you as a parent, as a coworker, or as a boss. You have to understand this, and that's this. There's reasons, there's reasons people are, I don't think I wrote it down because I wrote it last night at midnight when I was editing my sermon. <laughs> there's reasons someone is who they are, okay? There's reasons someone is who they are. Does that make sense to you? There's always a reason. There's always a reason people are the way they are. And feeling those reasons out is one of the most loving things that you can do. When you sit down with a person and you hear their story, the same way that that person wrote me that story that I read you during worship, when you hear their story, when you hear their experience, when you learn where they grew up and what, where they lived and what their parents were like and what their home life, life was like and their experiences, when you sit down with a person and you ask them for their story and you don't just receive the information, you feel the information with them, just in the same way I broke down and cried reading that letter, it's because I feel their pain. I feel their brokenness. I fear the things that they've had to overcome that I've never had to overcome in my life, but I can feel it. And when I feel it, I understand it and I'm able to give them sympathy. I may not agree with where they are, but I can understand where they are. 
And the beautiful thing is that when we do that with one another, it may, it may not, but it may even change your perspective in your mind because it may give you a different point of view. But even if it doesn't, it's the loving thing to do because we sit down and we feel through the situation with people. And when we feel with people, when we suffer with people, when we, when we sit with people, all of a sudden it changes just a little bit where we stand. All of a sudden, it at least puts us in a position to love each other unconditionally, even though we may disagree politically. But we can at the very least understand where it is that they're coming from. You know what? As a church, so many times people give a little bit different point of view or people give a little bit different stance. And so many times, if it doesn't fit the same stance that we sit in, we go, no, 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 no. That's not Christian. That's not Christian. That's not Christian. Don't even think that's Christian. Nope, that's not Christian. That's not Christian. Why is that not Christian? Because my daddy said it wasn't Christian. Because my mama said it wasn't Christian. Because my grandma said it wasn't Christian. It's not Christian, right? And we are just so resistant to even having a conversation or even hearing a story. And we think, nope, that's wrong. Can't do that. But what we as Christians should be known for is our sympathy. What we as Christians should be known for is sitting down with every single person, no matter their background, no matter their creed, no matter their religion, no matter their culture, no matter their color of skin. We should be willing to sit down and suffer through, feel through the stories and the experiences of their life to better understand who they are. After all, isn't that what Jesus has done for you? We should, as Christians, be known for right now, we should be sitting down with our black brothers and sisters as they scream out for help, as they scream out, Black Lives Matter, whether we agree with the movement or the hashtag or the organization or whatever it may be, we should be sitting down with our black brothers and sisters and going, tell me your story. Tell me your experience. Tell me what you have suffered through, and we should humbly sit there and listen and pay attention. That is what we can do to love. We should be sitting down with police officers right now. We should be sitting down as they're also under attack and as also they're being called out. We should sit down with police officers and say, hey, man, I've never been a police officer. So before I go on social media and tell you what you should do and how your job should be different and the education you need to have, before I go and like an idiot, make myself look like I'm the know-it-all of the world, tell me your story. Let's get a cup of coffee. You tell me your experience. You tell me what you've been through. Because as a white person who's never been a cop or a black person, I really shouldn't be sharing my opinion for the world to hear. Because what basis do I have? I should be sitting down with people and giving my sympathy, listening to them, loving them, suffering through the story with them. We need to do that with one another, for one another. We should be doing that for single parents. We should be doing that for people who are under-resourced. We have, should be doing that for people who have had injustices done with that. We should do that for immigrants who are entering our country. We as Christians should be known for not making judgments or making calls like we know it all. We should say, well, hold on, let's talk to everybody. Well, hold on, let's pray about this. Well, hold on, let's pump the brakes and let's Let's have sympathy and, and be, be like-minded and at least come together. We may have different political views even after we talk to each other, but let's, let's all get together and have some breakfast. And let's love one another and let's share with one another. We need to be known for doing that. Then he says this and, and next and, and, and Peter. He says, and love one another. Again, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm deep beating a dead horse here. 
Love one another. He goes, this is so important. This is so key to being like-minded is you, you must love one another. And then he just nails it on the head and he says this. He goes, and be compassionate and humble. Peter, he says, you must be compassionate towards one another. And compassion, if you don't know what it is, uh, compassion is the act of understanding someone's distress and then wanting to alleviate it. Again, not based on if they deserved it or if they earned it. Not, not basing on if it's their fault they got there. Not, not basing it off of anything except purely understanding that your brother and sister, another child of God, is in distress. And you, in the same way that God saw your distress and came to you anyway, even though you didn't earn it, in the same way going to that person, hearing their story, having sympathy, listening to their distress, and going, if there's anything I can do to alleviate it, I want to do that for you. If there's anything I can do for you, I want to do that for you. If there's any loving way I can help you through this, I want to do that for you. Peter goes, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. To show each other compassion. So, so let's put this together. We should all be informed by the law of Christ. We should have a collective consciousness together. But even though we may have a collective consciousness, we all sit in a, same seat, a different seat on the bus, so therefore we all have different political views. So how can we model unity in spite of diversity? We need to be sympathetic towards each other. We need to listen to each other's stories. But then we also we need to show each other compassion. But as we do that, we also need to be humble. We need to sit there and not try to fix a person. We need to sit there and humbly listen. I remember years ago, you know, shortly after um, the, the last election, immigration was a big thing, right? Everybody remember that? Everybody remember chanting, build that wall and all this stuff, right? And I mean, it was a very divisive time in our country, right? Very divisive about what we should do about immigration and what we should do about all these different people who are escaping ISIS and running to our country and, and trying to seek asylum. What should we do? And you know, a lot of Christians <laughs> had a lot of viewpoints on what should happen. And what, was, what I chose to do in that situation is I called my, my, one of my good friends, Arodi Sanchez, who actually came to our country um, in his 20s and he came from the Dominican Republic. I, I met him at Mid-American Nazarene University. I worked in the kitchen and the cafeteria, and it was, I was the only white guy. There were four Jamaicans, two Kenyans, and the Dominican Republic guy. And nobody spoke really a lick of English, and so I would just come in and make Ric Flair noises. That's all I knew to do. Like, I'm thinking, like, where, where can we all, like, come together wrestling? That's where we could all come together. So I'd walk, and I'd be like, woo, what's up, boys? And Arodi was like, Ric Flair, I know that guy. I'm like, okay, now we can talk about something. So anyway, Arodi and I became friends. We ended up living next door to each other for several years. He dated my sister, I think, or wanted to. I can't remember. Anyway, um, and so we became good friends. You remember when I was on sabbatical two years ago, he came and he preached here. So he was at my house. That was during that time. And so while I was on sabbatical and he's at my house, I said, Rody, I said, you're an immigrant. I'm not. 
Tell me your experience. You're hearing about all this stuff going on. Tell me your story. And we sat there that night. I remember it in my basement. And we sat there and we talked about the immigration. We talked about his experience. And he talked about what we went through. And I'm telling you, as we sat and we conversed with one another in a loving, humble way, I listened to his story and it amazed me there were things we were on the same page about. I didn't think we would be on the same page about. There were things we disagreed on. There were things he taught me that I had never known because I had never experienced it myself. And it really changed my view points on on immigration and it changed what needs to happen. I realized how broken the system was through hearing his story and the hoops he had to jump through just to be able to come to America to to go to college at Mid-American Azure University. Now, here's what's amazing about that. We sit down, we talk to each other. Guess what? Rodi and I still vote completely differently, right? He votes for his party who he thinks has the answer. I vote for my party who I think has the answer. That's okay. We're still best buds. We're still friends. We still learn something from each other because that's what happens when we show, when we sit down together and we're unified in morality, but we still are able to show each other some sympathy and compassion and we're able to humbly be together. We should each do that for one another. And all of the different dynamics and all the different situations that are going on right now, we need to sit with people who have sat in that seat and tried to understand their perspective by listening and suffering through their story with them. That is one of the ways that we can be Christian. That is one of the names we can give our religion, our faith in following Christ, credibility that makes us stand out, that makes us unique, that makes us different from anybody else. We should be informed. Our morality, our consciousness should be informed not by celebrities, not by CNN or Fox, not by Twitter, not by anybody, but God and the command that he gave us through his son, Jesus Christ, to love one another in the same way that he has loved us. And when we are unified in that and are able to hold that together in spite of the different opinions we may have, we look different. We are different. And we protect the credibility of the kingdom of God, but not only that, but together we can reshape Western culture once again. You know, it's interesting in the VP debate, uh, eighth grader Brecklin Brown got to ask the last question. I don't know if you watch this or not. But in the, the VP debate, the last question was this. Eighth grader, girl, she, she wrote this question. She said, when I watch the news, all I see is arguing between Democrats and Republicans. When I watch the news, all I see is citizens fighting against citizens. When I watch the news, all I see is two candidates from opposing parties try to tear each other down. If our leaders can't get along, how are our citizens supposed to get along? Your examples could make all the difference to bring us together. Now, to be fair, I didn't like either party's answer. I mean, for that moment there, I leaned in and I was like, ooh, what a good question. What a good leadership moment. Finally, I was like, I was waiting for this question. And I I leaned in and I was very disappointed by the responses I heard by both candidates. Because what I really wanted to hear, what I was really hoping either, either one of them would say is that one of them would just look at that camera at Brooklyn, this eighth grade girl who asked this question, ask this girl, and just in a very humble, compassionate way, look at her and go, you're right and we're sorry. I was waiting for that, and I didn't get that. I got other things. 
And whether you liked or disagreed or anything with their answers, that's not the point. But, but I took that question and I took what she saw and I, and, I, and I thought for myself, I imagined for a minute. And I want you to imagine with me. Imagine for a moment a world like we live in today. We're an eighth grade girl like Brecklin where she looks around and all she sees is violence, citizen against citizen, politician against politician. But imagine for a minute in Brecklin's viewpoint and the viewpoint of many of us, she looks around and she sees nothing but violence. But then she thinks of the church. And then she thinks of Christians. And she goes, I see it everywhere but I don't see it there. And imagine somebody like Brecklin being drawn in and going, it's the only place where I see people able to disagree politically, but still love unconditionally. Everywhere I look, I see no unity, but in spite of diversity, I see unity in the church and I see unity in Christians. And I see people who are willing to hear my story out, who are willing to give me sympathy and who are willing to show me compassion. If we modeled that in every church, in every city, and in every county, across the nation, and across the world, think of what could happen. Think of how different things could be. So the question I want you to begin to ask yourself now, the question that changed Western culture before and can reshape Western culture today is this, is what does love require of me? Not what does the Bible say, because the Bible doesn't always say. But based on the command that I've learned, based on the covenant that I made with Jesus when I decided to pick up my cross and follow him, I know what needs to be done because I know what love requires of me. Let me pray for you. God, this morning, as we come together, God, we humbly come to you. And God, will you help us be sympathetic? Would you bring us together as brothers and sisters in Christ? Your command that you gave us, it's not the easiest to follow, but it's so simplistic, so easy to remember. Would you help us to live that out? Would you help us to love one another in the same way that you have loved us? Would we, When we see our brother or sister not loved with the same love that you loved us with, would it ding our conscience? Would we be able to look at a situation, look past our political party, look past our political point of view, and would we be able to see something wrong? And would we be convicted? Would we be irritated? Would we be disturbed? And would it call us to action, God? And as we act out, even though we may have differing opinions, even though we may disagree with a family member or a neighbor or a friend about what exactly it looks like to love our neighbor the right way, would we be able to have sympathy? Would we be able to be compassionate? And would we be able to remain humble? God, would you help us to live that out? Would you help us in our world and in every situation Ask ourselves the question, what 
does love require of me? Because God, if we would stop and we would ask that question, your spirit that lives in our heart, I believe your spirit would speak to us. I believe your spirit would ding our conscience. And I believe your spirit would tell us when we should hold our tongue <laughs> and when we should be a loser and when we should step up. God, would you, would you reveal that to us? Would you show that to us? And God, would you remind us that the only real way to be, to be in step with that, to know when it's you, the difference between your voice and my gut is that I continually reach out for you. I continually reach for your teachings when I'm continually connected to you through prayer and worship and through the scripture. God, would you help me be diligent in understanding what your brand of love looks like so that I can understand what the right brand of love is. God, would you do that in me? Would you change me from the inside out? In your name we pray, amen.